Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League, Liverpool losing at the Wanda, Tottenham going under, Haaland bringing the thunder and Ladea tearing Valencia asunder. We give all the big stories a ponder from Spurs losing Sun to Liverpool. They weren't worrying, but now they've begun to. Plus, Arsenal's offside blunder in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. In today, for your Totally Football show, it's just you, me, Raphael Honigstein. Hi, James. Tom Williams. Hello, James. Nick Miller. Hello, James. And Duncan Alexander. Hello. Hello to you all. What a week. What a week. All that drama, plus other things as well, like Arsene's, Arsene's making a new offside rule, but they've only just got new sponsors. Little in-joke there. But, of course, the big story was the Champions League. Hey, what a return. What a set of last 16 games. Yeah, very interesting set of games, particularly in that we got a couple of very unexpected results. PSG losing away at, at Dortmund, notably, mm, and Liverpool, so sure Liverpool losing at Liverpool. But Liverpool, definitely. In fact, Tom, without any further ado, let's begin with events in Madrid. Yep, soul power there. Tuesday night, Liverpool losing 1-0 to the massively unfancied Atletico Madrid. Duncan Alexander writes, Atletico with no shots on target after the 26 minutes, preventing Liverpool from having a single one in the entire game. Exceptional brand loyalty. Do we all owe Chola Simeone a bit of an apology, Duncan? Um, Possibly. I mean, the Liverpool supporters seemed a bit aghast and confused that Atletico would set out like this and play this sort of game but they were obviously you know I mean it sort of reminded me a little bit of the that bit in Return of the Jedi when the Emperor says um, I'm afraid this you know space station is fully operational when it, everyone assumed it, it wasn't you know they they knew how to, to grind out that result I mean obviously it was ironic as well I guess that letting in an early goal at the Wanda kind of did for Liverpool because right. that was essentially what did for Spurs in the Champions League in the summer. So in, in that sense it wasn't that different. I mean apart from the fact that Atletico Madrid actually scored an open uh, an early goal wasn't that different to say the Liverpool performance against Norwich at the weekend or other ones we've seen of of, of late. Yeah, I mean I, I think obviously having to take Mane off at half time was an issue because he was possibly their most effective forward in the first half. I mean, Salah and Firmino weren't very good. Trent Alexander-Arnold had possibly his worst game of the season. I mean, he had about three crosses in the first 10 minutes that all went into the stand. It's just one of those sort of games, I think, for Liverpool. I mean, the point is that you can't really see Atletico doing the same Anfield. Well, can you not? Because if they were to score at Anfield, Liverpool would have to score three times. Yeah, but they had to score three against Barcelona, and they managed that. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean they're always going to no, do No, not it. always. And there is a, I'm a, curious about what happened there, here, though. I mean, Jamie Carragher afterwards was talking about a, a lack of creativity in midfield, which sounds reasonable. But then this is a team that's currently on the greatest league campaign anyone's ever seen. Yeah. So, so why, I mean, why were they held to no shots on well, target that mid, here? The midfield they went for is very much the kind of safety-first midfield. And, you know... The, <laughs> They do create more chances, particularly in the Champions League, actually, and particularly away from home when Naby Keita plays. Um, but Klopp, for whatever reason, doesn't really trust him in, in the bigger game. So, yeah, it was. I think he went for safety first. You know, probably nil-nil, one-all would have been a good result for Liverpool, and, and they didn't get it. But I don't think they're in, in dire straits. Andy Robertson saying, 
afterwards, Atletico Madrid were falling over and then they celebrated like they'd won the tie. Nick, have they won the tie? Uh, well, no, clearly not. I mean, the Mane thing was a bit odd. Klopp said afterwards that he took him off in case he was sent off. Well, he, got, he, sent off. he got booked towards the end of the first half and it was clear the Atleti players were, you know, trying to engineer a second yellow card and it did look like that could happen. I mean, it was safety first and obviously bringing on Origi, who's got a particularly good Champions League record, right. who, who again didn't do very much in the second half, but it, you know, it wasn't a, a terrible decision, particularly with Mane just coming back from injury as well. So, yeah, it was a kind of five out of ten night for Liverpool, but it wasn't a disaster. It felt like an almost uh, Fergie-esque circling of the wagons after the game. The fact that almost all the Liverpool players and Jurgen Klopp had a bit of a pop at the referee, disguising that to varying degrees, as if they'd sort of said, "Well, we've you know we've had a day off, but this is going to be the message of unity we're going to put out." And also the fact that you know the, the emphasis very quickly switched to the return leg, where we know Liverpool are such a formidable force, but. Uh, yeah, an interest, interesting tactic to sort of try and just draw a line beneath the game as quickly as possible and, and move the debate on. Mm. I think Look, they were genuinely frustrated with them, with themselves and with, with everything. They're not used to, to playing in the Champions League against a side that just doesn't really do anything apart from being destructive. They found it very hard to penetrate those three rows. And ultimately, they, they left feeling kind of um, a little bit sorry for themselves and, and, and concerned for their progress. It's a kind of tactic that they do come up against teams that, that decide to defend. Le Camenique saying, what's the difference between Atletico Madrid on Tuesday and every other deep defensive team that Liverpool face? They're better at it. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. And they've been doing it for, you know, six, seven years. Or and they relish it as well. You could see how much they were enjoying it and loving it and the crowd were loving it. You know, some teams when they play defensively, the crowd are kind of like, oh, what are we doing? But Atleti fans are like, yes, this is us. And also, it's Liverpool, that's six away defeats since the start of last season in the Champions League. It's not, this isn't a rare event. Mm. They, they lose away from home quite a lot in Europe. Okay. And it's that- also not like Liverpool have been blitzing teams in the league. I mean, right. obviously they're on this phenomenal run, you know, completely unprecedented statistically, but it's not like they score four or five goals every week week one of the remarkable things about their season is that they're often quite ordinary but have this incredible ability to find a winner somewhere um, and up against superior defensive opposition and with a midfield that we've known all season long isn't especially creative perhaps not all that surprising that they ran aground it's a recurring theme in the Champions League that teams who play in this tin pot leagues then come up against really good sides and <laughs> and struggle mm. Well, as you say, it's not that uncommon for Liverpool to lose away from home. What is uncommon, as in it's never happened, is them losing a two-legged European tie under Klopp's reign. So that augurs well for the return game at Anfield. Less good is the fact that Atletico Madrid have only ever conceded two goals in 13 knockout games under Simeone. So they'll be defending uh, their one-goal margin uh, with aplomb uh, come uh, Three weeks from now, what's the what's the news on Jordan Henderson? By the way, he was taken off with a possibly a hamstring injury, but they weren't sure. So it was like a kind of a, t- a twinge, and they took him off as a precaution. So I imagine he might be rested against West Ham, but okay. possibly not out for long term. All right, we'll we'll move on to Spurs, but I just want to check who thinks Liverpool should be worried. Tom, um. I mean, I, Atletico Madrid are the last team that you want to be in this situation against. Right. But given Liverpool's Tom home says record, worried. a little bit worried. Rafa, you say worry. Yeah, worried, but they've overturned worse deficits from first legs in Spain. OK, Nick? Worried, but I think they'll still go through. 
Duncan. No problem. Phlegmatic. <laughs> Lovely. Let's get your takes on Spurs after this. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Meanwhile, Wednesday also saw Spurs losing by the same scoreline as Liverpool. Very different kind of game, though, as they went down uh, 1-0 to Leipzig. Rafa, you were there, as were you, Nick Miller. Mm. We said hello to each other. It was very nice. That's nice. Uh, 1-0, the the least that Leipzig deserved. Yes, I thought they they played well. They controlled the game. They had chances to, to make it more. Spurs did come back without really doing all that much in the second half. And for a team that was without a first three choice center backs this was a pretty good performance from from Leipzig you know very inexperienced have never been in a knockout in the Champions League before average age I don't know 24 probably and they did talk a lot about White Hart Lane and how it's going to be a big occasion and how they themselves weren't quite sure whether they'd be mature enough but Spurs never really troubled them and I think that's where it's hard to understand Joseph, for all his complaints, and he spent most of the press conference complaining about the lack of options and how terrible his situation was, at least give it a go. I mean, ask a question. Don't just like, sit back and hope for a miracle to happen somehow. But Leipzig without their three first-choice centre-backs, but Spurs without their two first-choice goal-scoring threats in Harry Kane and, of course, now Son Heung-min. Yeah, but the, Mourinho seemed to use that as an excuse for just not not trying, but not trying to sort of create anything without obviously these two enormous players. It seems like he goes from, well, the only thing we could possibly do is, you know, be negative and spoil and not really try and create anything Which going is forward. From in the in the past, I mean, you think of the, the, the incredible Inter performances on their way to the title. Years ago, and it hasn't worked since then. And also, this the, the, the kind of the excuse is that this is a it's a sort of pragmatic way of looking at it, but. It's not pragmatism is kind of tailoring your game plan to suit the situation. Whereas Tottenham are trying to be defensive when they haven't been particularly good at defending this season. They've only kept, I think, three clean sheets under in 21 games under Mourinho. Mm. And so it, 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 it doesn't seem like a kind of a particularly logical way of approaching a game. Right, it's also I'd... unusual for a manager to complain he's got no strikers and then go for a 4 4 2 in the next match. So. Hasn't got a striker, so I try to sort of bodge together one striker from two half strikers. Mm. Kind of more okay. and I'm not, yeah. sure, I'm not sure if anyone's asked this, but should Spurs have maybe bought a striker in any of the more recent transfer windows? It's it's a novel approach, but yeah, I mean the Spurs as a club have kind of brought this whole thing on themselves by right. not buying a striker and appointing Mourinho in the first place. Because if they didn't know that this was the kind of thing that Mourinho does, then they you know they haven't really been paying attention recently. Mm. I did enjoy his post game quote that they turned up to a fight with a gun, but no. No bullets. Uh, also enjoyed Ben Davis protesting about the penalty that he conceded against Conrad Leimer. Hard to imagine a more blatant infraction yeah. than that. I mean, Ben Davis, who's only just come back into the team after injury, had a bit of a shocker at Villa at the weekend, was partly responsible for Villa's opener, uh, and then one of the most stonewall penalties you will ever see. Um, but on the plus side, for fans of Welsh defenders, Ethan Ampadu, hmm. 19-year-old centre-back for Leipzig, Really impressive performance. He's barely played for Leipzig this season, even though he's almost first choice for Wales, albeit when he plays for Wales, he tends to play as a defensive midfielder, whereas at Leipzig he's been used more as a centre-back. But Welsh football Twitter in raptures last night over his performance. And this was three of them. All three. This was only his second start of the season. And Nagelsmann had no choice but to play him because defensive midfielders were also out, so he couldn't even play him in midfield. He had to play him as a centre-back, which, again, I think makes you wonder, you know, why... 
why not try to force the issue a little bit, to be a bit more direct, I don't know, or even press. I mean, they did nothing. They they sat back. They hoped that they could catch them out in one or two counterattacks with with strikers that aren't necessarily the best counterattacking strikers in the world. Yes, Lucas Moura is fast, Bergwijn is fast, but they're not unbelievable uh, in that respect. But Spurs never pushed, never pushed enough. Ampadu playing was another kind of irritating thing about what um, Mourinho was saying because he was talking about having literally no options on the bench other than a sort of half-fit lamella. But they've got Troy Parrott, who he apparently, he, he has said, isn't ready. Well, maybe... Good playing off the shoulder, no? <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> Well, may, but but maybe he maybe he isn't ready. But like you know, Mason Greenwood probably wasn't ready, and United have thrown him in out of necessity, and he's turned out to be you know pretty useful. Do you think it's going to be any better in three weeks? What awaits them there in Leipzig? Is are the problems that we saw yesterday, Son being out potentially for the rest of the season with his fractured arm, and Deli Ali throwing things in his uh, disgust at being taken off? Are they going to only kind of ferment and kind of boil over in the interim? <sighs> Well, I mean, Jose um, threw Deli Ali under the bus last night saying, uh, yeah, he was obviously angry with himself for playing so badly. And the game improved once he, once we took him off. Well, did you agree with Jose? Um, That's yeah, the... there's a point. There's a point. But do you have to make it public? I mean, can't right. you tell your player that in private? Um, I don't think that's going to be making that much of a difference. Um, but... It almost sounded, you know, with him saying, I want to turn the clock forwards to July when all my players are back. It almost sounded as if he's preparing everyone for this exit in the Champions League and those games against Chelsea coming up, etc. They're so much more important. Mm. And this is kind of gone. And I guess it suits his mental approach to games. I mean, he, he played up this, this adversity before the game. He's going to play it up even more for the second leg. Hope perhaps that you know the game will stay at nil-nil for a long time and then maybe Leipzig starts sort of thinking shall we go for it shall we just defend and maybe they can nick a goal but if Leipzig play to their strength right. and if Spurs don't improve quite rapidly then you can only see one outcome in the second leg it's also self-serving as well because he's basically just saying well, how am I supposed to you know do anything with these this bunch of clowns it's unlike him I know I know but people said he changed Rafa he mm. rolled back the years in the interview afterwards he was particularly spiky with the BT interviewer he he said oh Lamella didn't even do any training I've had to put him in the team he was saying they mentioned the Chelsea game at the weekend and he, he bristled at that and said well Chelsea will be at home tonight drinking sparkling water with lemon I don't know how he knows and that. biscuits he said yeah in the press conference. I wouldn't have thought biscuits would be allowed but there we go but um I think the the Chelsea Spurs game has got potential to be you know, quite big because Lampard is in an equally tricky mm, position. Absolutely. Jose Mourinho hasn't won a Champions League knockout tie since 2014. Oof. One last word on, on Leipzig. What's been the reaction in, in Germany to their performance? The, the Timo Werner, a frustrating night for him, although he did get the penalty? Yeah, I think the, the fact that he scored the penalty and Leipzig scored is more important than him missing a couple of chances or, or perhaps not having the best of games individually. But I think, generally speaking, they they felt thought that this was a sort of big maturity test that they passed. You know, they hadn't been consistent in any of those big games uh, domestically in recent uh, months. Uh, they drawn every single one of them, often when they played poorly in one half or the other. And this was a solid performance throughout the ninety minutes in difficult circumstances. And I think they do see it as a as a st- important step for this team to to grow and to deal with adversity and, and these issues better. So. 
they were hugely encouraged. There was a nice line from from Nagelsmann at the end when he said, "Well, um, we played with some seriousness and seniority today. If the manager doesn't have any beard, at least the players played with a bit of maturity." Right, because he's young. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, well, getting the reaction to Dortmund's performance on Tuesday and Atalanta's storming show on Wednesday after this. Join Ruby Walsh, Paddy Power, Tom Nugent and a whole host of great guests each week on Paddy Power's Racing Podcast from the horse's mouth. It's your one-stop shop for build-up, analysis and a bit of crack ahead of the 2020 Cheltenham Festival. New episodes every Friday. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Gio Reyna geht jetzt ab und davon auf Haaland. Ja! Die Siege! 77. 77. 2 to 1. Haaland! 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 There you go. That was the sweet sound of Tuesday in Dortmund. Once again, Rafa, football bloody Haaland. What, what was... That was Dortmund Radio, was it? Yeah, that was Nobby Dickel. Okay. Their former striker, who's now the stadium announcer and does the radio. Brilliant. No what? jokes. <laughs> what was, sorry, just what was, just to repeat his name is Nobby Dickel. Correct. Oh, okay, well, there was loads to get excited about with uh, Haaland or Haaland as the BT were commenting. So it, it turns out that Ho- uh, that's how you pronounce it in yes, Norway. Yes. Just phenomenal again. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the second goal was just one of those all time classics, especially with the sound of the, uh, oh, the netting or the. the, the metal contraption holding up the net just kind of whoosh and the way he just left Thiago Silva for dead basically um, but there was perhaps an even better moment when he cleared a, a corner Is and then the raced up <laughs> and there's lots of memes and gifs yeah. and stuff which are I think worth watching um, apparently 6.6 seconds for 60 meters I mean unbelievable yeah. pace especially for a big man you know mm-hmm. 94 uh, 194 but the truth of the matter is also that he didn't have a particularly good game. And this is something that is sometimes overlooked. He, his touch can still be better. His link-up play can still improve. He's still very young. Um, he doesn't always make the right decisions. And he'd had endured a fairly frustrating night until he scored those goals. But you can understand why everyone's completely going crazy about him. It's, right. it's now 10-7. and seven. And 11 goals with 13 shots on target I've got with Dortmund in all competitions. Is it 11 and 7? Yeah, 11 and 7 in the Champions League. He's got more goals in the Champions League this season than Barcelona, which is pretty good for a 19-year-old. It's extraordinary. 39 goals in all competitions this season. He only took 464 minutes to hit double figures in Champions League goals. I mean, the, the stats go on. Chris Jones says, which of the greats does Haaland most remind you of? I'm thinking across between Lewandowski and Ronaldo. Richie Sombrero answers, Brock Lesnar. <laughs> Yeah. Which, Duncan, you, I had to Google that one. Brock is a, a former wrestler who's turned UFC and does have an astonishing similarity facially anyway. He yeah, reminds but- me of Adriano in terms of the fact that he's very tall and rangy with that very powerful left foot. And he gets compared with Ibrahimovic quite a lot because of where he's from in the world. But, but the, I, it makes me think of Adriano quite a lot. The run at 6.64 seconds, which 
I don't know if that's official timing, but he doesn't even move his legs very fast. It's like it looks he's, weird, doesn't it? He, he's <laughs> it like covering. Like he's been superimposed on the rest mm, of the action. Yeah, covering it's, enormous amounts of ground. His stride must be sort of eight meters a, a it's go. Like, it's like watching the T Rex run in Jurassic Park. Yeah. And I saw a few people point out on Twitter that he still holds the world record for the longest standing jump by a five-year-old um, <laughs> at one point six three meters. Now I, I didn't know that how far five-year-olds could jump is a big sporting kind of thing but apparently he is the world record holder of that so he's um he's a phenomenon he certainly is Fabio Capello at John uh, Sky Italia before the game was saying that he shouldn't be talked about in the same breath as your Neymars and your Mbappes but he certainly won the the, the battle with the, the second of those here and I mean, if you were a say a, a Petro State building a club right now which of the two would you invent a sponsorship deal to pay for Mbappe or this fellow Haaland Oh, Mbappe. Would you? Yeah. Hands down. Really? Every day of the week, Why? Yeah. Why? Because he's much more proven. I mean, Haaland is, like, the most exciting young footballer in the world at the moment, completely. Right. But he's still finding his feet. Whereas, okay, Mbappe was awful against Dortmund, but he's now had three or four extremely consistent seasons of goal-scoring, trophy-winning. He's a World Cup winner. He was second to Messi in the European Golden Boot last season. I don't think Haaland's anywhere near that level yet. Really? But that's, that he's certainly on the same sort of trajectory. Buy them both. It could be the new Steve Bull and Andy Much. <laughs> Anyone take Haaland over and back? I th- think I would, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, because if, if he continues this trajectory and doesn't get an injury that you know robs him of pace or whatever, he is basically the most complete footballer ever built. So, yeah. But you have to deal with Mina Raiola. And also, he did turn down... The, he's eligible. He was eligible to play for England, and he chose Norway, which is a disgrace. Imagine yes. going into Euro 2020 with uh, Haaland up front. I think uh, James Horcastle pointed out that when uh, Gio Reyna came on, Dortmund's forward line had been born in London, Leeds and Sunderland. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah, Gio Reyna, who's, what, 17 and looked pretty sensational as well, while we're speaking of exciting young players. Tom, what about PSG? Very un- unhappy return to Dortmund for manager Thomas Tuchel. It was, and you start to fear that PSG are cursed to repeat the same Champions League experience season after season after season, because the same things always happen. They go into their biggest game of the season and the coach decides to test out a new tactical system that he basically hasn't ever used before. PSG have been playing with this ultra-attacking 4-4-2 for the last two months. And the question all along has been, OK, well, they're scoring lots of goals domestically. Is this going to work against Dortmund? But he hasn't really deviated from it at all, mm. except for in the second half of the recent cup game against Dijon, where he actually did test out the 3-4-3. But he went 3-4-3 against Dortmund sort of matching Dortmund's shape and I think the the thinking behind that was he had quite a few players who were short of fitness chiefly Thiago Silva and Marquinhos and I think the idea was to give them a bit more protection uh, but going forward PSG just did absolutely nothing uh, Neymar who himself looked a bit short of fitness and complained about the fact that he'd been kept out of the team for the previous three weeks after the game was coming too deep they couldn't get Mbappe into the game they couldn't get Di Maria into the game and what it looked like to me was a recurrent issue that PSG have in the Champions League that they don't have any sort of playing identity but they don't need a playing identity in Liga because they can just rely on their individuals and so what we've seen for the last couple of months okay you know, they, Tuchel came up with this 4-4-2 system that worked but they've just been blowing teams off the park and then a game like this one against Dortmund comes around 
and Tuchel looks at Dortmund and all the threats they pose and thinks, so I can't go into this in quite the same gung-ho way. I need to do something different. And so for the first time in the entire season, tries out this new system that doesn't work. Um, And, okay, Neymar's fortuitous away goal means that they're still in with a decent chance of turning it around. Um, But then even after the game, you know, Neymar questioning why he'd been kept out of the team for so long. Thomas Murnier admitting he hadn't even realised that he was at risk of suspension um, before he got the booking that ruled him out the second leg. And this after Marco Verratti, who was on a booking and knew he was at risk of suspension, gets a booking for dissent in the 89th minute. And every season we get to this point of the campaign in the Champions League and PSG just make the same mistakes um, and I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't you know you wouldn't back against them to turn it around in the well, second yeah leg, I mean but... they have the away goal and crucially they don't have a lead to blow this time which is great news when you're PSG but they are going to be facing that return game in Paris without the now suspended Munio and Verratti and I really don't know how to call this Dortmund's form on the road is awful yes and they've been conceding too many goals but the surprise was how good they were defensively. Of course, you can turn it around and say PSG were, were absolutely terrible uh, with Neymar just going deeper and deeper, as you said, Tom, and, and, and trying to to do stuff that really doesn't suit his game, I think. Um, and Mbappe being sort of lost in this inside right position uh, with no reference point ahead of him. They will be getting under pressure. They will be severely tested. It's still, I think, a 50-50 game. But at Dortmund, the great encouragement, the great confidence and satisfaction comes from the fact that they for once had balance in their team you know they were exciting going forward they created chances uh, but they looked solid at the back they didn't concede too many chances there was that shot from Neymar that uh, flashed uh, towards the outside of the post when they were a bit indecisive with the ball bouncing around in the in the box and there was the goal where Zagadou dives in and misses misses the tackle but that was it so by Dortmund standards, that is a stellar performance defensively. If they can be anywhere near as good, and of course score that crucial away goal, because I don't think this is going to be, they'll it'll be possible to win with a clean sheet. They've got a real chance now, which is much more than I think internally. Therefore, they would have at the, uh, after the first leg when the draw was made. They were very unhappy. Uh, they didn't, of course, you know, talk about it, but they didn't want Tuchel, and they didn't want PSG. And they thought, this is it, but it might not be. Okay, well, with Dortmund 2-1 up, uh, that's where we'll leave that game. And Raphael Honigstein, you're off, Rafa. I'm off to... Do other things, but later on... we'll be doing other things together. Yes, we will. In this case, listener, the goal show for the Europa League, Thursday night. Wow, Europa League gets real. 16 games, boom, four hours of goals. Tune in for that if you manage to catch this podcast before it goes to air at 5.30 on Thursday (laughs) afternoon. Rafa, see you later. Bye. Bye. Meanwhile, at San Siro, it was Maxi Gomez against Mini Gomez in many ways. uh, As Atalanta took on Valencia and took them apart 4-1. Although, you know, to be fair, it could have been a lot more even that. That scoreline. Emmett Gates points out San Siro hadn't seen a home win in the Champions League knockout stages for seven years. And this one provided, of course, not by the Milanese Giants, but by a team in their first ever Champions League campaign, a team with the wage bill of Reading, a team that lost all of their first three group games, scoring just one goal and conceding 11 in them and pretty much becoming a Champions League laughing stop. Well, they're not laughing now, are they, Tom? 
They're certainly not. Um, I wrote a piece about Atalanta this week and spoke to some of their fans, and they're quite enjoying the fact that they're um, getting to use the San Siro while Inter and, and Milan's fans sort of press their face against the proverbial glass like some sooty street urchins. Um, <laughs> I mean, ideally, they'd be playing these home games at their actual stadium, but because it's being renovated, they can't. And I think there was a feeling that in, in the group phase, it perhaps took them a little bit of time to really feel at home at San Siro, mm. but as last night demonstrated, they, they certainly look at home there now. Right, 45,000, I think, was the attendance. About 2,500 of them were Valencia fans, but it means that about a third of the population of Bergamo had made the short journey across from uh, that town to see the game and, and, and see an absolutely phenomenal performance. Atalanta, crazy to watch. They, they play essentially like they're drunk. <laughs> the, the kind of enormous bravado, slight clumsiness, total lack of responsibility, loads of cheek. Atalanta have had 10 different goal scorers yeah. this season in the Champions League, which is more than any other team. They are this year's official fun team, so it's mm. good. The new Ajax. And Valencia, as I mentioned, had loads of chances. They finally got one uh, late on to uh, make the score a little bit interesting. And it was interesting to see Gasparini responding to Valencia's pressure by taking off a defender and putting on another <laughs> forward, which is classic Atalanta. Um, I mean, that, that sums it up in a way. You know, 3-0 win or 4-0 win would have been amazing. You know, then shut up shop, but no. You know, people talk about them as a miracle club, but they're just essentially an unbelievably well-run side. As I'm sure you point out in your piece, no, they've got a great youth programme, they don't, they stick with managers, they don't overspend, and they're just great. Yeah, and also I think, you know, a period in, in football's evolution where the spectre of a European Super League seems to loom larger than ever before, and when the powers that be are, are trying to turn the Champions League into more and more of a closed shop, it, it's great that you do get these examples of well-run clubs like Atalanta and like Ajax, whose budgets... You know, pale by comparison to the teams they're up against, but still manage to beat those teams and succeed in the competition. Um, and, you know, hopefully these aren't going to be the last examples we ever see of this. You mentioned Ajax, Tom, who obviously got to the semi-final last year. How far do you think this Atalanta team can go? I think it will be dependent on the draw. Um, and, I mean, I, you know, you look at Valencia, who were missing a lot of key players, notably their first-choice centre-backs, both of whom were missing, um, Rodrigo Moreno at the other end yeah. of the pitch. It was a very good draw for Atalanta. And you suspect that against a more... Uh, a more savvy team uh, defensively, they they would struggle. Um, but you know there, there are teams in in the competition with weaknesses, big teams in the competition with weaknesses. I, you know I I don't think there's a particularly foreboding collection of clubs. So I could see them you know making the semis, for example. Well, they've got to get past the second leg of the Mastaya. So we'll see how that goes, and uh, then see who they draw. Uh, but absolutely fabulously entertaining on Wednesday night and I'm sure loads of people are going to be tuning in to see that second leg. Next up, we are going to move on to the Premier League. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Loads of chat to come on all the wrongness in Catalonia currently, Barcelona and nefarious acts and that. Just extraordinary. Uh, but uh, time now to talk about the Premier League. Uh, we've got Premier League round 27 coming up at the weekend. The reverse fixtures uh, gave us two of the worst Premier League games in memory, actually. Uh, Everton-Arsenal, which was 0-0, and Bournemouth's 1-0 defeat to Burnley. But I'm going to say there are some real treats this time around, not least the game at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea against Spurs. What's that, Saturday lunchtime? It is, as Jose Mourinho whined about incessantly on, uh, after the game last night. Right. 
So, uh, well, fourth versus fifth, just one point between them now. And Chelsea, who've been fourth, who kind of been in stasis in fourth like forever, is this the weekend when they finally drop out of uh, the top four? To be absolutely fair to Mourinho, as again he pointed out last night, they, they were 12 points behind, Spurs were 12 points behind Chelsea when uh, he took over now just one point and this is a, a stat from Daniel Storey uh, since beating Crystal Palace and Denver Knights Chelsea have taken 15 points from 13 games which is fewer than Newcastle and Watford Right. so I mean it's been coming it's been coming and the latest defeat coming of course on Monday night 2-0 to Man United it's the 7th home game that they've been defeated in in all competitions this season there was controversy here Chelsea very unhappy at Two disallowed goals for them and the fact that the goal scorer of United's second, they felt, should have been off the field for having kicked Batshuayi in the... Batshuayi. In the Batshuayi. Yeah, and I, I think um, I think the sort of consensus was that, that Chelsea had probably been hard done by on at least one, if not two, of those decisions. Maguire probably should have been sent off. Um, Although he did come out with an excellent excuse. I, I mean, thought his excuse was really convincing. Like Wayne, Wayne Hennessy level. It genuinely uh, made me think for a couple of minutes, if I fell backwards and someone yeah. was falling on top of me, what would I do? No, I, I actually, because until that point, I was, I can't believe, if Son got a red card for kicking out, why is Maguire? But he's, if you didn't catch it, what he essentially said was, he fell over and could see the player falling onto him, so he extended his legs to basically keep them up to stop mm. them from falling onto him. But I don't, I don't think he was... Batshuayi was going to fall on him. Ah, he was. Right. Well, he he, he, he might have fallen on him after being kicked in the cods with with someone stunned. Right. But no, I don't think he was actually falling on him of his own volition. Well, Maguire stayed on the field and contributed an excellent header, yeah. uh, which made it 2-0 to United, who can take loads of positives from this game. Another great performance from Bruno Fernandes, Fred impressing lots of people, and defensively looking really solid. Yeah, United looked good. I mean, the first half was one of the lowest quality halves of a Chelsea United game ever I would say it was hard to remember that this was the 2008 Champions League final fixture because they were two teams who couldn't really string anything together but second half United really really pushed on um, I enjoyed Maguire predicting his goal to his brother did we see that mm. on, on text message um, his, his brother messaged him set plays every chance for you tonight and Maguire came back with yes I'm going to score a round back tonight watch eye swinging corner which I presume means in swinging corner and uh, his brother said, don't start too far out then. Quite a prosaic convo, but, you know, accurate, if nothing else. We don't know, though, whether Harry Maguire predicts that for himself before every game. And yeah, this is just like, the first time it's actually come true. Going true. forward, I'd like his brother to publish all the texts yep. when he predicts scoring goals. I'm going to balance Batshuayi on my feet. Watch. <laughs> just watch. Solskjaer, to be fair to him, has won all five of his away games at Chelsea and Manchester City as Manchester United manager, which is more than they'd won in their previous 19 games under Ferguson, Moyes, Van Gaal and Mourinho combined. So he has got some issues, but in the kind of bigger games, he is pretty good. It's almost the story of United's entire season in microcosm in that they, they limp along... Um dropping points, playing badly. I mean, they went into this on the back of three games without a win in the league, um, having not scored a single goal. And just when you feel like, you know, the knives are being sharpened for Solskjaer again, they go and produce a performance like this against one of their traditional enemies and get a very useful three points. And players who are having the finger pointed at them, like Anthony Martial, for example, scores a lovely centre-forwards goal. And it just sort of takes the pressure off until, you know, they lose at home to Watford on Saturday, which could quite conceivably happen because this is what they've been doing all season, you know. Well, they did lose... uh, Away at Watford, in what was uh, Nigel Pearson's first victory 
uh, at the Hornets earlier on this season. Are you are you hopeful of Watford's chances of getting what would be their first ever win at Old Trafford? I mean, they need. In the they're looking for a second win, Watford, as we discussed on Sunday's pod. Uh, that's four league games without a win for them now, having had that very impressive burst of form after Pearson came in. Um, it's very difficult to predict what you're going to get from United this season. They have generally struggled when teams have defended against them. I was there for that game at Vicarage Road when Watford beat them and United completely dominated possession, did nothing with it uh, and then got hit a couple of times on the counter-attack, basically. So, I mean, you expect that will be the formula that Watford will try and reproduce. As for Chelsea, it's Spurs. I mean, the thing with Chelsea is that they did look better when Olivier Giroud came on um, and you wonder whether he will finally get a start possibly in this game because although his goal was legitimately ruled ruled out I mean that was VAR doing what it should do he was offside and it was ruled out I mean it was the other two VAR decisions that were the issue for Chelsea but um, yeah I mean surely he's earned a chance to play now It is staggering that Lampard has used him as sparingly as he has I mean of course he wants to make Tammy Abraham his first choice striker and playing with Tammy Abraham necessitates a, a way of playing that, that is beyond Olivier Giroud but when Abraham is out when, I mean how many opportunities does Batshuayi need to have to prove that he just can't be trusted to score goals I, I, I'm slightly biased towards the French players but I, you would hope that Giroud gets gets more of a run out now um, given that okay a goal that was ruled out for offside but he did more in the however many minutes he was on the pitch than Batshuayi's done in his last four appearances Right Chelsea presumably going to be without Kante are they? What's the, what's the yeah, word Two or there? three weeks I think with a, an adductor muscle injury and Conte who generally speaking prior to this season has been an almost virtual ever present uh, both at Leicester and at Chelsea has suddenly started picking up all these injuries left right and centre and he's he's not been able to put more than four or five games together in a run this season due to a succession of, of muscular problems uh, which is concerning for Chelsea also a bit concerning for France as well given that he's such a, a linchpin yeah that's true what, what about Spurs though of, as we mentioned without uh, Son Hyung Min now. Would you expect Mourinho, who by the way has never won in the Premier League at Stamford Bridge as a visiting manager, uh, would you expect him to do with his lineup for Saturday? I'd imagine he'll do something vaguely similar to uh, how he approached the Leipzig game, even though that didn't work. The theory behind putting the, those two players up front, uh, Mora and Ali, is kind of sound. I wonder if he actually might. In, in this instance, drop Ali because he was so unimpressed with mm. uh, how he played. Possibly play a kind of three in midfield with Undombele coming in and if Eric Lamella's fit enough to play 90 minutes, he could do that. But I'd expect it to be something similar to against Leipzig. I think it's obviously quite a nice twist on this game given it is Mourinho going back to Stamford Bridge. And I think obviously with Lampard as Chelsea manager, Lampard looked genuinely rattled after the game against United. He looked for the first time like it felt like the, the situation's sort of getting out of his hands a little bit. Um, and, you know, he he knows that obviously he's under quite a lot of pressure to finish in the top four. Right. Um, this game is enormous, really, because I think both clubs need to be in the Champions League and they possibly both could get in, in there, but a defeat for either in this match will be will be pretty hard. Michael Davis asking the question, in the next month, Chelsea's fixtures include games against Spurs, Bayern, Liverpool, Everton and City. Uh, do they need a good showing in those games for the board to keep faith in Lampard? Well, I think you can say that if it 
another manager other than club legend Frank Lampard might have got the the push by now. The other thing was Kepa didn't come back into the team for the United game. Caballero doesn't really inspire confidence, mm. so they've not really got any good options there. Um, Spurs obviously have got their issues, but like Lacelso was really good in, in midweek. Um, I think he could cause havoc uh, playing Chelsea. So I would I've sort of got a hunch. Moo's going to pull this one off. Also in action this midweek, in their first game after last Friday's dramatic two-year Champions League ban was announced by UEFA, Man City, who uh, uh, deepened the relegation woes of West Ham with a 2-0 win at the Etihad. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne very much in full effect here, setting up one, scoring Tother. I watched this game as a Premier League hyper fan and uh, it was quite a bleak match, dystopian sort of match. There weren't many people at the game. Right. You could hear the players shouting to each other, which is never a good sign. Was that, was that attendance because it was a rescheduled fixture or part yeah, of I the... Yeah, I saw some City fans saying it was difficult to get to and obviously cold midweek winter night and stuff. But it was very sparsely attended. There were sort of sporadic chanting about UEFA. Um, we'll see you in court, we'll see you in court. Uh, F off UEFA we'll see you in court one of the examples right I'm not sure you know that's the spirit of football singing about court proceedings um, probably the biggest excitement of the night was Zabaleta coming on for West Ham obviously for, former City legend and interestingly he was the last player ever signed before the current regime took over really? at City the day there's before a, there's another interesting stat about Zabaleta isn't there yes he all three clubs he's played for since moving to Europe um, Espanyol City and West Ham played at the time he played for them in converted athletic stadiums. So he obviously so he obviously loves the steeplechase and fair play to him. I mentioned Kevin De Bruyne, but Rodri also stood out, at least statistically. It was his performance commensurate with the fact that he had 196 touches, the most by any player in the Premier League since data became available to up to in 2003. He also completed 178 passes on his own, which is a Premier League record, and is more than West Ham, the entire West Ham team did. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, West Ham just sat back. I mean, it was one of the most least ambitious performances I've ever seen. And really? I've seen some West Ham fans be very upset about that. If, you, if you're going to go down, at least go down fighting. And our friend Benji Laniado tweeted after the game that as a seasoned West Ham fan, you can tell when relegation's on the cards and it very much feels like it's on the cards. Really? Well, next up, West Ham, who are in the bottom three, have uh, Liverpool, a Liverpool side looking for that record-equaling 18th straight victory in the Premier League, while Man City will be travelling to Leicester, uh, to the King Power, for a clash of uh, third and second. Nick, you're going to be there for this. Mm. Is it true that Man City actually have a really bad record away at the King Power? They've lost two of their last three there. The statistics say it's true. Yeah, it is true, isn't it? Uh, do you think that's going to be a similar story this time around? No, I th- Leicester haven't looked quite themselves in the sort of last few weeks. Demi Vardy, I don't think hasn't scored since the reverse fixture. That's right, two months ago. I I wonder whether he's been playing when he has been playing. He's he's had some injury problems. When he has been playing, he has possibly been playing with some injury problems. Sam Parkin on this very show uh, was suggesting that he's got an injured bum. Mm. And I think he I think he was being serious. So yeah, Vardy hasn't scored since the reverse fixture two months ago. James Madison as well has had one goal and one assist in his in a similar period. What what's happened with Leicester in, in general? I think it's partly that at the start of this kind of slightly iffy run, Brendan Rodgers started to play around with things in the team a little bit unnecessarily. Wilfin and Didi has been out, which is he's one of the sort of possibly their key player sort of holding everything together in midfield also an element that when they were playing so well earlier on in the season it was one of those situations where everything was 
going right and it was quite a sort of delicate balance mm. and if just a few things get thrown off in that like Candide being out or like Madison having a bit of a dip in form then it throws the rest of the, the whole team out and they you know they can't perform as they as they have been doing yeah they were they were definitely overperforming the the underlying numbers if you like in the autumn um, but even so in, in a normal inverted commas season Leicester would be right up there scrapping for the for first place so it they are not in great how form. Do, how but do you mean? Oh, with that point total? That yeah, got, that point total in, in some previous seasons has been enough to put you in and around the, the it's battle. It's a re- remarkable thought, isn't it? From Man City's point of view, a useful win, not least because there were questions about how they would respond to the dramatic news coming out of uh, UEFA last Friday. But it's all been very positive. The team looked looked united and in good spirits and Pep Guardiola uh, announcing that he's 100% staying at City and the truth will prevail. Yeah, they all looked pretty good, apart from maybe Gabriel Jesus, who looked a bit out of sorts. He he kept missing good chances, as is his one. He actually had, within the space of about three seconds, chances worth an XG of about 0.62, um, and West Ham only managed 0.1 in the entire match, which kind of tells the story of... Wow, is that the lowest XG? No, there's been a game when, I think... Bournemouth got 0.01 and obviously with Bournemouth even had a game where they didn't have a shot last season so, right. um, can you have negative XG is that possible no but I wouldn't rule it out for some of these teams right. some of the fixtures we'll be looking at a little bit uh, later on alright we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be hearing about why this might be Arsenal's time on Spotify smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media Tom Williams, on Sunday, you will be going to the Emirates to see Arsenal take on Everton. Nick's about to tell you why this might be the start of a phenomenal run, which is going to see the Gunners romp into the Champions League positions, restoring themselves of their rightful place at the, you know, the, the, the front line of the uh, English football hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, they are six points behind what will probably be a Champions League place, fifth and seven points behind fourth. Um, I've been to quite a few of their games in the past few weeks and you can see that they've kind of been building you can see what they've been trying to do even though they haven't got the results and then while 4-0 was perhaps a bit flattering against Newcastle at the weekend it all kind of came together a little bit they've got a lot of sort of dynamic attacking talents that are all coming together Nicolas Pepe is finding some form and scoring some goals even Meza Ozil scored on Sunday clean sheets as well clean sheets two clean sheets uh, I think that's the first time they've kept back to back clean sheets since March or April last year they've got a, a very kind of friendly upcoming fixtures the next five games are Everton West Ham Brighton Southampton Norwich there is a rearranged game against Man City which will have to go in there somewhere but it mm. might be kind of later on in the season and I mean, as we've mentioned, the teams above them as well, none of them look 100% convincing. Chelsea and Spurs, we talked about. Man United, for all their exploits at Stamford Bridge on Monday, with big issues there as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously United uh, haven't got Rashford, won't have Rashford for the foreseeable. As we discussed earlier on, they win big games and lose stupid games. Um, elsewhere, the other kind of contenders, Wolves have got quite a thin squad, Tottenham, as we've mentioned, no Son and Kane for the for the rest of the season. Sheffield United probably look the most solid of of the rest of them, but they don't really score many goals, so that's always a uh, a factor. Are Arsenal going to be in the Champions League next year? I Nick? think so. Yeah, I think they are. They're, they've got they've got a tough run in, right? But if they win four or five 
of their next games, they'll be kind of right in the mix. Mm. I think with the mid-season players' break, yeah. as we like to call it, um, a lot of teams came at a bit of a bad time. Maybe it sport their rhythm, but I think Arsenal probably benefited more than any other team. You know, they two weeks away when Arteta could actually preach and almost like a new pre-season. So I think that's really going to help. And the fact that obviously everyone focused on all the draws, but with that win against Newcastle now he's only lost one league game as Arsenal manager so it's starting to look like a pretty kind of impressive solid run so the reverse fixture between these two sides Arsenal and Everton saw the drabbest of nil-nil draws with both Arteta and uh, Ancelotti watching from the stands they were both Mm. about to take over yeah like a kind of Premier League Statler and Waldorf Um, (laughs) and it was interesting because I'm not sure we'd ever had that situation of both teams being watched by incoming managers um, and yeah I mean both Arteta and Ancelotti have clearly had positive impacts on their respective teams Everton have won five of eight under Ancelotti Arteta has only won two of eight but they've only lost one of those and of course coming off the back of that you, 4-0 win over Newcastle last weekend Do you think that they're going to wreck Everton and that they're going to wreck Nick's uh, carefully honed theories about Arsenal? Well, I mean, the the form would suggest that the Arsenal should be on guard. I saw an interesting stat on Twitter from uh, David Alexander Hughes, which said that Everton have been averaging uh, 144 vertical passes per game, compared to only 88 in eight weeks before he joined. Um, and Ancelotti spoke about the need for Everton to be a bit more direct when he came in, and. That appears to be what's what's happened. Um, so yeah, given the form they're in, the fact that players like Richarlison and Calvert Lewin are, are enjoying their football, you you'd expect they'd give Arsenal a good go. I mean, if you look at Everton's forthcoming fixtures right. after Arsenal, they're then at home to Man United, away to Chelsea, and home to Liverpool. So you know they're two points above Arsenal in the table, so they're not they're not out of the Champions League picture themselves. So these these next four weeks will be a be a real test of that. Incredibly. Mm. Um, who could be back in the Everton team this weekend but Andre Gomez? Probably the recovery to horror of injury ratio. Um, yeah. The biggest ever recovery, I'd say. It's what, about 130 days or something? Yeah, and he, if he plays every game for the rest of the season, which admittedly is possibly unlikely, yeah. and Son remains out for the rest of the season with his bad arm, yes. then Gomez will end the season with only one appearance fewer than Son, which you'd not have predicted on that rainy afternoon at Goodison Park. Right. That is uh, extraordinary. The only time the Toffees actually ever won at Arsenal in the Premier League was back in January 1996 when the Totally Football League shows Adrian Clark was playing in midfield for the Gunners. Coincidence? Question mark, it's question not for mark, us question. to say. All right, Arsenal have Olympiacos away in Piraeus on the Thursday evening. So, you know, factor that one into your calculations. Elsewhere, what awaits us this weekend in the Premier League? Loads of relegation scraps. Watford, as we mentioned, are at... Man United having beaten them already this season at Vicarage Road. Saints face Villa, which is, intriguingly, the team that concedes most at home against the team that concedes most on the road. So, mm. could be goals and some merits. Uh, West Ham have Liverpool Monday night. David Moyes whipping up his uh, Simeone impression. Burnley have Bournemouth in a rematch of the fixture that gave us the lowest shot totals in the history of the Premier League. Norwich's farewell tour takes them to Wolverhampton and Brighton visit the Blades, who are now just two points off fourth place. Are Sheffield United going to make the Champions League? No. (laughs) (laughs) But we are sat here in late February talking about whether Sheffield United could make the Champions League, which is something I don't think we thought we would be doing in August so right. hats just off 
just one win in their last 11 in the league and for if you, Brighton. Actually, if you think about it, they've yeah. had more goals ruled out by VAR than yes. any other team. Sheffield United five this season. So right. they, where could they be without where? without that? Yeah. Uh, as I was saying, Brighton, uh, one win in their last 11 Premier League games. Uh, they've been off to Spain where four of their players were filmed inhaling from balloons. Mm. And not because they were making animals or anything, I don't think. Not this is one helium of those... balloons just to get a funny voice. No. That, although that is brilliant. I did that last weekend. Actually. Did you? Yeah. And what were the circumstances of that? Uh, it had been my son's birthday a few weeks before and right. the balloon was ready for disposal. Uh-huh. But if you've so got you got helium... inhaled the stale helium yeah. out of the balloon? Yeah. That must have tasted horrible. Wouldn't we taste of anything. Right. Just... How did you sound afterwards? Your classic helium voice. Right. We should do a helium show. Or like bonus, bonus material. To. Right. Yeah. You need a lot of balloons. What did you say when you, you did you choose your words quite carefully? I decided to go for, do you remember the Steve Coogan IRA day-to-day? Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That. yeah. Your tone is antagonistic and you're making me very angry. By the way, uh, listeners, if you're curious what's going on here, um, your voice is is produced by the muscles of your larynx vibrating the air, and uh, helium vibrates at a slightly different pitch. Do you to... know, I didn't know that. I yeah, just yeah, assumed it was I... magic, but that is <laughs> that is great. <laughs> great so basically, and that, wifi, the frequency comes out as uh, as much higher. Wow. Well, there you go. That's the uh, blades against Brighton. Duncan, you wanted to add something about West Ham, I think. Well, just we touched on it earlier. Liverpool, obviously, are Liverpool with these these incredible numbers in the Premier League. West Ham, equally bad numbers almost. And David Moyes, famously, has got a terrible record away at the old Big Four as a manager. He's never won an away game. Really? Um, Drawn 20, lost 36. Now, so if West Ham were to win at Anfield on Monday, possibly the biggest shock result in the history of the Premier League, I would say. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tom, meantime, you wanted to, I think, uh, say a line or two about Saints Aston Villa. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Southampton have got a dismal home record. They've only picked up 11 points uh, at St Mary's this season, which is uh, the worst home return of any team in the division. Um, And I was just sort of looking at uh, possible explanations for their disappointing home form. And I think one of the issues Southampton have is that they're quite a reactive team. um, And I don't mean that as a criticism, but whether they are pressing teams or whether they're playing on the counter-attack with the pace of people like Nathan Redmond and Danny Ings, that they've got different ways of stopping other teams playing, but they're not as adept at sort of taking the initiative themselves. And and just looking at, at some of their stats, they are first in the league for fouls per game away from home. Uh, but only eighth in the league for fouls per game in home games. Obviously, fouls are bad and not to be applauded, but a team committing lots of fouls suggests a team that are up for it and in your face. Mm. Um, And also shots per game. Passion. Passion. Uh, Shots per game. They're fifth in the league for shots per game away from home and 15th in the league for shots per game uh, when they're at St Mary's, which again suggests that they are, for some reason, a bit less up for it at home. And I think it's because it's a lot easier when you are a more reactive team team to play that way in front of your own fans because there's an expectation you're going to be on the ball more and you're going to try and you know take the initiative and there are suggestions that the St Mary's crowd is is perhaps not the easiest crowd to play in front of when things aren't going well oh really um so that that could be a factor as well they are an interesting team statistically Southampton they're very kind of different to a lot of teams they've scored more goals this season from high turnovers so basically winning the ball high up the pitch and then having a shot than any other team 
Um, so when their kind of game plan works, it tends to work. And, and you're right, when it doesn't, it tends to go very wrong. So they, basically, I think within a f- 10 minutes of a Southampton game, you can almost tell if they're going to win or lose. Um, That's handy. Uh, well, they're up against Villa this weekend. As mentioned, Wolves are up against Norwich. Wolves, of course, have Espanyol at Molineux on Thursday night. Man United are travelling to Bruges ahead of their clash uh, with Watford. Uh, games that we haven't mentioned include Crystal Palace against Newcastle, the big Benteke v. Joe Linton showdown, potentially. Coincidentally, these are the two lowest-scoring teams. And the, the two um, lowest XG teams as well. I mean, they're right. not really... If you combine their XG, they've got about 46 this season, which is about the same as Leicester um, mm. on their own. They're not... They're not going... There might be a bit of niche beef in this game as well, because oh. if people remember Steve Bruce left... Crystal Palace under dubious circumstances quite a long time ago. So he was the he was the Palace manager. He hadn't been there very long mm-hmm. in the Simon Jordan era, um, and he decided he wanted to move to Birmingham. So he tried to resign, but Palace refused to let right. him resign. Took him to court to stop him resigning, whatever. Then decided to appoint the Birmingham manager Trevor Francis, which allowed Bruce to then go to Birmingham. So it was all a bit of a a love triangle with Bruce and Francis. With Do you remember when they had to sue Tony Pulis because he? he- and Ian Dowie as well. So they, showed, right. they, they sent someone to Ian Dowie's uh, unveiling at Charlton, was it? He went to Ian Dowie said, I, I want to leave Palace because I want to um, be closer to my family right. who lived up north. Uh, and technically, the valley is more north than Selhurst Park, but not that much. So what happened? They sent somebody to his presentation, what, with a subpoena or something? Yeah, with a, kind of, with a piece Court of... Court order. With a, some kind of piece of legal paper to wave at him. Brilliant. Basically, being a, being a solicitor for Crystal Palace in the 2000s was a very profitable lifestyle. That, uh, you're undermining that the move north to the valley, I think. Key access to the Blackwall Tunnel. Uh, yeah, which, and even know. City Airport, I guess, if yeah, you needed. So, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking uh, of Steve Bruce, have you seen that quite amusing clip of him that surfaced this week from, I think, the start of a press conference? He's swigging from a bottle of water and a journalist who's off camera asks something like, how was the break? And Bruce puts down the water bottle and goes, what was that? How was the bacon? <laughs> um, and, I don't know, and then the clip ends. So I don't know what happened beyond then, but a lovely little, little moment of interaction. <laughs> uh, Burnley are taking on Bournemouth uh, red hot Burnley that is with 10 points from their last 12 also very much in the conversation vis-a-vis Champions League positions obviously this podcast is a big fan of the Eddie Howe song um, which mm, concludes to, with he went to Burnley and then he came back which so may actually yeah. describe his weekend this time. <laughs> <laughs> alright Burnley won 3 of the last 4 Premier League games uh, will they make it 4 from 5 We'll be finding out and discussing that, of course, when Totally Football Show comes to you early Monday morning. Uh, still to come in today's show, we'll be digging into that huge Barcelona mess that's unfolding in the Catalan capital. Right now, though, time for a bit of Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Producer Charlie here. We've got Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line ahead of another big Premier League weekend. Lee, it's all tightened up near the top. We don't know what might secure Champions League football, but who's going to finish fourth? Yeah, the whole City thing has plunged our Champions League markets into chaos, which I'm sure is the main ramification people are talking about. But we've had to open a clunky sounding to finish in the top five market. The Everton trophy just got juicy. As for fourth, Chelsea lead the way in the betting and are odds on to finish in the top four at 10 to 11, which does sound good. But it was so much better not that long ago when they were something like one to eight. Now they've got Spurs breathing down their necks at five to two and Manchester United at seven to two. It's been 24 years since Everton won at Arsenal. Could it happen this Sunday? Wow, I can't quite believe that. 
Surely everyone's won at Arsenal in the last four years, let alone 24. But the odds do suggest that this is a good opportunity for the Toffees, with their hosts not odds-on at the Emirates, and that only usually happens against the big boys, or Brighton. Arsenal are even money to win at home, with Everton given a 5-2 chance. The draw, Mikel Arteta's speciality it seems, must look like value at 12-5, and this, after all, is the Mikel Arteta derby. And the two lowest-scoring teams in the Premier League face off at Selhurst Park. How many goals are we expecting between Palace and Newcastle? <laughs> well, none, based off your gloomy question, Mr Sunshine. But let's look on the bright side. Our traders certainly are. They make it 1-14 to 14 that there's at least one goal in this game. Celebrate good times, come on! We're also odds-on. There's two or more goals in this one, and the frankly bizarre-sounding price of 31-20 to 20 that there are three or more. As for the result, we make Palace the favourites. I should say, it's 11-2 that it finishes 0-0, which probably will now, given it the big one. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, Nick, I've seen some suggestions that the game of the week took place in the Scottish Cup. Were you following this? Motherwell were 4-1 down at halftime in their fifth-round replay at home to St Mirren. They brought it back to 4-4, listener. It went to a penalty shootout, which St Mirren won 3-2. So there were actually fewer goals in the penalty shootout than there were in the actual game, remarkably. Other Scottish Cup replays saw Aberdeen beat Kilmarnock 4-3. So if goals are your thing, you can't say fairer than Scottish Cup replays. Arsene Wenger is overhauling the offside rule. Listener. Or is he? Or is he? So Arsene's pitch, which he said will sort it out and would basically solve everything was that from now on, rather than any part of the uh, attacking player being offside, causing the action to be invalid, he would basically invert that, and it would be any part of the attacking player being onside Mm. would now make it onside. And then what happened? Then FIFA... Because there was a suggestion this might be in from this summer. Yeah, Yeah, well, because, because of this role he now has at FIFA, there was a suggestion that he could sort of rush this through and, and put it in front of IFAB and it would be signed off in time for the European Championship which sounded a bit fanciful at the time and FIFA have since confirmed that while Arsene Wenger is obviously free to come up with uh, ideas about things that this is not what's going to happen well, and, I think, and I think football fans everywhere breathe a sigh of relief I mean it would be stupid it idea. would be one of the most fundamental changes to the game for a hundred or so, yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, as a former Arsenal manager, Arsenal were the team that benefited when they changed the offside rule in the 20s. They then obviously went and won three titles in a row in the early 30s. So maybe it's a, a Wenger, you know, Arsenal need to win the league again. Let's let's fiddle with the offside law. But yeah, it's, yeah. An nonsense. As Tom mentioned, FIFA released this clarification email about Wenger's comments, which in which they basically said old Arsene was shooting the breeze at some panel and uh, everyone seems to have taken this a little bit too seriously. But he actually sent out kind of official state, uh, an official announcement about it, didn't he? I, I think he may have been acting Flat with a, a little bit too, of enthusiasm. A little bit too, too much initiative, right. yeah. The only offside rule change that's needed in football is surely the adoption of the brilliant blue line from ice hockey approach. You divide the area up into th- three. There's a neutral zone and two attacking zones, and the ball would have to cross into the attacking zone before any of the attacking players. And if it goes out, all the attacking players who are in that zone have to come back out, otherwise they're offside. It's fantastic. Everyone will be running backwards and forwards, 
mm. all day long on ice skates. I'm not sure that's working. What, what other what other um, rules yeah. would you from ice hockey would you bring into football? Would you allow kind of people to sort of smash each other in the, the face with some glass? Uh, no, no. I think football should stay football. But I do like the beautiful simplicity of the offside rule in hockey. I genuinely think that it, people should look at it. Maybe ice hockey could take a leaf out of football by making the puck visible to the human eye. Well, most eyes are quite <laughs> capable of following the puck. What uh, about the old um, taking off the goalkeeper? Um, oh, yeah. Well, that, approach. I think, is something that should be done in... But anyway, we're not here to talk about <laughs> ice hockey. You're bogged down, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, because there's Barcelona. Two things about Barcelona this week, both of which have caused eyebrows to uh, soar skywards... First of all, that whole business which we mentioned in Tuesday's uh, European-flavoured Totally Football show of them activating an emergency clause to sign Martin Braithwaite from relegation strugglers Leganes, which, as people have pointed out, is, is just wrong on every front. I was always led to believe that, you know, the the transfer deadline was sacrosanct, that, you know, obviously your arsenals used to get an extra 12 hours to sort out late faxes and stuff, but after that it was, I mean... So how have they managed to, there's a loophole here, or there's an emergency striker... Or I mean, there's always been a goalkeeper thing. angle, because obviously right. that's a specialist position, and if so you do run out... So why are they eligible to bring in another player? Yeah. Why? But, well, basically, they, if um, they can prove that they are have a, a shortage in certain positions, and they basically have a doctor's note to say, well, can't Spurs do that then? Well, th- no, because they don't play in Spain. But this is a specific, ah, this is a Spanish, uh, specific thing. Spanish thing, right? And I think I think Alvaro was talking about this on um, on Tuesday's Tuesday, yeah. pod, where they they can only sign someone who's playing in the Spanish system right. or someone who's unattached and a contract. And they've chosen to buy the top scorer. From so they activated his release clause. So the, his his parent his his current club or previous club had no say in the matter. Leganes, I don't think can. Sign a replacement, although I did see a suggestion this morning that they're going to basically say to the Spanish FA, come on, this isn't really on, you're allowing... Because I think he's their top scorer. He is their top scorer, yeah. If the Leganes can then sign someone, do they, that team, then say, well, what about us? And then it just basically triggers this domino effect. And also, is he going to play for Barcelona, Martin Braithwaite? No, he's... Former Middlesbrough player, Martin Braithwaite. Yeah, who scored, I think, eight goals across two seasons in the championship for for Middlesbrough. Yeah, they're, they're basically screwing over a team who are fighting against relegation so they can have this guy on their bench for the rest How of the season. How long ago did the transfer window close? Uh, what are we? It's like February now, so like three weeks ago. Three weeks and ago. do they still <laughs> have uh, Griezmann and Messi and Fatty, to name but a few? They do, yeah. And Just that, that, extraordinary. I don't, I don't quite know why they can't call up some players from their B oh. team. I don't, you know. also think how Martin Braithwaite's going to feel on his first day at training when he walks in and, like, you know... <laughs> Like, you didn't really want me. And there's Lionel Messi sort of just, you know, looking a bit grumpy. Right, well, and he has reason to be grumpy because of the extraordinary revelations, courtesy of Cadena Serre, uh, that there's been some uh, examples of tension of late between the squad and the management structure, at least the directors at Barcelona. But Cadena Serre revealing uh, this week that a social media agency who actively targeted people who posed a threat to the current... Barcelona president or players who just seem to have a little bit too much power uh, that this social media agency was actually being funded by the club themselves the club paid over a million euros to them and they produced tweets and social media messages that essentially 
spun against Messi and his wife, PK, Guardiola and Xavi, all because apparently they're very much uh, from the uh, team Laporta, the previous Barcelona president, uh, and, and other people, including the, the man who's likely to be standing against uh, Bartolomé at the next uh, Barcelona elections in 2021. Mm. Just in- incredible, no? It's a classic example of people thinking that you can do something online and that you won't get found out. I mean, we see it in loads of areas of life and, it, you know, it's just... Barcelona do not feel like a club that's got a good succession planning regime in at the moment. It feels like, you know, basically once Messi leaves or retires, right. they're in trouble. Well, and the notion of Leo Messi leaving, I think, has always seemed a bit fanciful, but between one or two other things that have happened lately and the fact that, according to these revelations, his own president has been paying a social media agency to write rude things about him And online. they've given him a contract where he can leave for free every summer if he wants to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Barcelona, I would say, currently feel in a more perilous position than at any time in the last 10, maybe even 15 years in that the players who have moved on, Xavi, Iniesta, etc., their replacements haven't yet... Um, really settled in. Um, The Griezmann signing, which never made any sense, given the fact that Barcelona are always going to be wedded to a playing system where there is no obvious role for Griezmann in the 4-3-3, that hasn't yet paid off. He scored the odd lovely goal, but I I don't think him and and Messi are fully on the same wavelength yet. Obviously, they've had injury problems and all the rest of it, but um, yeah, it it does feel a little bit precarious. And they've also weighed in on the Manchester City situation and and Pep Guardiola has hit back at Barcelona, which is not something you see very often. So... Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, more perhaps on that in next Tuesday's Totally Football Show. Before that, we will be returning Sunday night, your Monday morning, with our reaction to all the stuff that happens over the weekend. Uh, Many thanks uh, for the moment, though, to you for listening in, listener. Tom Williams for being here. Raphael Honigstein, who was here. Duncan and Nick as well. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) and uh, have a great weekend we'll catch up with you Monday morning you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too thetotallyfootballshow.com I'm Emma. And I'm Jeffers. And we're the Series Linked Podcast. Subscribe to our channel for all of the biggest TV interviews. And to stay on top of all the latest telly. It said Gervais sometimes fluffs his lines. Like I'd have left them in. It's a stunning place to shoot. I like put something up on Instagram and there's somebody a post going, oh, you, look at you, lazy-eyed, you're ugly, aren't you? And on the way in upcoming episodes, we speak to Imelda Staunton, David Baddiel, Carl Pilkington and many more. Just search for Series Linked. That's Series Linked. Muddy Knees Media.